Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Dictated is uh, almost always during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Uh, This show is actually recorded the day before uh, because right now, uh, as you listen to this, if you've uh, turned it on right as it's been published, I am somewhere between Dallas Fort Worth and Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I will not have access to the internet until probably Sunday evening, so I've pre-recorded this show, and hopefully I'll get to pre-record at least one more, so we don't have a week missing three shows this week, so this will be Wednesday's show, and as I am going to take my time off and head up to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and during that time be up there prepping my remote bug out location and hope to be eventual homestead permanently, I thought a good subject to talk about today would be prepping a remote location. You know, how do you, you know, we've done shows before about how you find it, what characteristics you look for in a remote location, how you shop for it, get a good price on it, get a good deal on it, things to think about from, you know, water on the property to electrical hookups to solar to off-grid, on-grid. We've talked about all that stuff, but we've really never talked about, well, once you have this place... And assuming you have some sort of a structure on it, because we've we've talked about putting a structure using, you know, travel trailers in the interim, building a house, finding an existing house, but we've never really talked about, okay, I've got a place, I've got a house of some sort on there, be it a trailer or a a, a site-built home uh, or a berm home or a cabin, whatever it is, I've got a place, I've got a house, It's, it's got electricity and water in one form or another, so it's a place I can go now. But what do I do to enhance it, to make it better? better, uh, especially if I don't live there right now. If I'm living remotely, I get up there once a month, once every other month, and I'm slowly prepping it. Well, what kind of things can I be doing uh, when I'm not there constantly to make it a better place should I ever decide to move there permanently just because I want to, or move there permanently or semi-permanently because I have to? So I'll talk about some of the things that we're doing and that we've been doing and that we continue to do uh, and that we'll probably be working on and hopefully shooting some video of while I'm gone. One of the first things that you need to realize is, okay, now you've got a place, uh, but you've also got an expense, even if it's just property taxes and insurance. So since you have that expense, it really behooves you to make sure you're taking care of your remote property and you can't always be there. So one of the best things that you can do is find somebody that can be your boots on the ground in that remote location to keep an eye on it for you. Just to have your phone number and to walk by the place once in a while, and if something doesn't look right, to make a phone call call to you, maybe even someone you trust with keys to the place to check the inside, make sure it hasn't been robbed or something like that. So it's really a good idea to have a person like that. And it makes a lot of sense to pay them, honestly. I mean, something as little as uh, somewhere between $25 a month, uh, just you know, not to be a caretaker, just to keep an eye on it. And uh, most people will tell you you don't need to do it and say you feel better if you did, you know, that type of thing. And when they get that check every month, you know at least once a month, They're going to walk down and take a look. 
So if you can find somebody that's trustworthy in the area, that's a great thing to have. The next thing is, okay, let's say you ever had to run there. You just had to go. Something went wrong. It's one of the things that we prepped for was either either coming or imminent or already happened, and you got to get out. you got to go now. Well, what's there? What is already in place for you? Um, is there any food there? Is there, you know, hopefully you have a water supply, but if the electrical grid were down, can you still procure water from some way, shape, or form? So you obviously need to start stocking food and water. That's one of your very first steps. Now, as you're doing that, though, you have to realize the limitation that you have with the location being remote. You're not there to defend it, and even a good caretaker is not going to be there all the time. And there's a propensity for somebody to break in and steal from you. So it's probably not a good idea to keep any high-priced items and definitely, this is a good rule anyway, but in your remote location, you do not stock all your food stores, your first aid storage, your ammo, if you keep any firearms, you do not stock all that stuff in one location. You break it up, you spread it out throughout the home, that way it actually looks like less if anybody does find it or get into the place, and you really need to cache some of it in a way that makes it impossible to find unless you know where to look. And it could be any you know, if you have a house with a basement in it, maybe you uh, you build a, a subfloor and hide some stuff below it. Maybe you build some spaces in the wall. Maybe you build like an underground little mini root cellar somewhere on your property away from the home. Now. I would say that some of this stuff could be seen as overkill if you did it in suburban America in your house, you know, uh, where you live and work in our home every day. Now, having some stuff cached and hidden is a good idea. We do it. I think you should, too. But taking it to the, some of these extremes uh, may indeed be an extreme if it's where you live every day and you're there to watch over things. In a remote location, it's a totally different situation. Somebody could be in your remote location Right now, this second, if you have a little TV up there with an antenna on it or something, listening to your TV set in the background, well, they pack up your food and leave, and you would never know until your neighbor took the time to walk down if you have that, or if not, until you show up there. Now, if you show up there and you're going for a little mini vacation, it may make your vacation not so entertaining, but if you're going there because you have to, and that's what you were counting on, that's what you were betting on, well, now the things that you thought were there to support you aren't. So I don't think it's overkill in your remote location to do something like take an old burnt-out refrigerator or freezer and bury it in the ground and store non-perishable food and supplies in there and bury it and hide it. Don't think that's overkill at all. But to seal up some PVC pipes with the materials and uh, supplies and uh, bury them with a post hole digger ver- vertically in the ground. I don't think that's overkill in that scenario, in that situation because that will ensure you there's at least some portion of what you've put in your remote location that's going to be there when you get there. You know, and, you know, another thing is to be prepared when you go to your remote location to catch somebody in the act. Uh, So I think you should be armed when you show up at a remote location. Uh, Most most of my listeners that live in states that allow you're probably concealed carry anyway. But, I mean, once you get on your own property, you can pretty much carry whatever you want in any kind of location that would qualify as remote. And uh, at least it's time if you 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 don't have a handgun to break out the carbine or or the shotgun. Just as you approach your house, because you don't know who could be in there. And I, I know that sounds a little bit out there, but it's probably a good idea. Uh, to at least be alert that there could be something going on when you arrive. 
to not show up, you know, with the music blaring and uh, flying down the road. So that covers some of the basic storage and just basically showing up. What are some of the maybe happier subjects, though, about the things that you can be doing to improve the quality of your location before you uh, before you ever actually uh, end up there? Well, uh, one of them is you can you, you really need to be thinking about if you ended up there long term, that gardening would become part of your lifestyle. And either you're, it's going to be part of your lifestyle when you move there by choice, or it's going to be part of your lifestyle when you move there by necessity. So one of the modifications that we're making, because obviously I can't plant a garden in Arkansas, and then show up in June and pick a couple cobs of corn and have a, a, a picnic. Because there's nobody there to take care of it. So I can't have a producing garden while we're living remotely, and it's probably impossible. You know, if it's a place you get to every weekend, maybe you could do it. But for most people that are living this two-part lifestyle, um, you are not going to be able to do that. But the most important thing when it comes to gardening is the soil and the garden beds. So one of the things that we've been doing is we're building raised beds out of the mountain stone that's just laying all over the place up there. Uh, We're filling those raised beds with a deep layer of leaves, uh, maybe scraping some of the topsoil from the the bottom land uh, because that stuff's been there for 50,000 years without anybody living there. And there's some pretty rich topsoil down in the bottom land on my property. Uh, And then we're laying that over with a layer of newspaper and laying that over with a layer of mulch. Just so that that there's organic matter there now, it holds additional moisture in. Those areas we don't come back and see real high weeds because it's laid down with this thick layer of mulch. And we have little soil creatures and earthworms and everything else beginning to get that soil ready to go. So if we ever, when we ever do go there, those particular um, areas are ready to go. We're ready to start dropping seeds or plants in. And there's certainly a timeline to production coming up, but it's greatly reduced over showing up and all you have is rough land. So I think it's one of the easiest, lowest cost modifications you can begin to make on your property. Because you don't even, if you're going to have to bring in compost and soil and all, you don't even necessarily have to do that uh, at this point. Simply begin to get that ground into a better condition. You may even get to a point after, if you're doing a long-term plan and uh, after a year like that you may go in and plant a, a, a crop of clover uh, or winter rye or something like that in your second season in that bed and let it begin to nitrify the soil and improve the soil naturally. You know, it's up to you how far you take it but it's definitely setting up a couple places that you're going to be able to garden in when you go there is a great idea. Another thing that you can start doing is if you want to attract wildlife to your property, deer, squirrels, rabbits, things like that, start putting in remote feeders. Uh, you can get feeders very inexpensively now. They run on solar power. You can definitely get a feeder large enough if you set it to go off for a couple seconds a day uh, to last 30 to 60 days in between you showing up. You throw a little solar panel on it, a uh, 12-volt battery or a 6-volt battery, depending on your particular brand of feeder, and that feeder will be feeding wildlife whether you're there or not. And it will be attracting wildlife. Hold on, folks. What's the matter with you, jerk-ass? Really? What's the matter with you? Blow the horn! Blow the horn, you dumbass! I just don't understand people. It's an on-ramp. I'm getting on the highway. You yield. You let me get on the freaking road. You don't keep me on... 
Anyway, folks, uh, it's definitely one of the things that you should be doing. And if you're not doing that, you know, then you're going to have to deal with it when you get there. So, uh, I'm sorry, this guy got me out of whack here. Again, attracting wildlife. So that th- those uh, those animals are being attracted to your property, and if you intend on using them for simple joy of observation or as a food source, they're there and they've become conditioned to that feeding response. Now, there's states where that's illegal. You know where. If, you, if you're throwing feed, you can't hunt. Um, on your own property, I have a real problem with the government saying that, but you have to abide by your local game laws. But in a lot of states, it's completely legal, uh, especially in the south because of our large deer populations, to do things like that. And even if you're not hunting on your own property, a lot of times it's acceptable, let's say, if you had property adjacent to government land, like uh, National Forest, State Forest, something like that, to feed on your property. And then as long as you hunt far enough away for the feeders to hunt, the government land that you're adjacent to and you're just drawing them into the area. So it's something to consider. It's something to look at. And it's definitely something you can do remote because that's what today's show is about. All the different things that you can do to improve the property without being there on a daily basis. Another thing you can really work on is the establishment of permaculture crops because unlike gardens, most of your permaculture crops don't need you to be there uh, on a daily basis to take care of them. Uh, one of the easiest things to do is look around and take stock of what you already have. For instance, one of the plants that grows naturally and wild on our little mountain home in Arkansas is blackberries, wild blackberries. Now, they do okay. It gets very dry in the summertime. The soil, uh, except down in the bottomland, which is all shaded where they don't grow, the soil up on the ridges where the sun hits them and they can grow is very silica-based, sandy, clay it's not a good, rich, fertile soil for them, and it doesn't hold water really well. So what you end up with is a lot of blackberry bushes, but very small, uh, not very sweet berries. But if you take existing places where these blackberries are growing, clear out the competing brush, trim them back a little bit like you would if you had cultivated them, stack a little raised bed garden around them, throw down a layer of compost and throw down a layer of mulch to create a little microclimate for a plant that's already established itself in a rough, tough, harsh environment, then it thrives. And now you have great, big, beautiful black wild uh, uh, blackberries. And that's done with nothing but a little bit of assistance. Everything else has happened by itself. And you can do this with a lot of things. We have some very large hickory trees. Hickory nuts are actually better more than just for the squirrel. A hickory is, is very, actually quite similar to a pecan. And we have a lot of hickory trees. And what we're doing is we're wringing the hickory trees with stone, throwing down a layer of mulch, just to give greater uh, moisture retention to the trees so the trees do better during the dry part of the year. Now, these are trees that are already producing mast. They're great big, giant hickory trees, 100 feet tall. Uh, maybe 70 feet tall is a little bit more accurate with some of these trees. Uh, but these are large, old I mean, some of these trees look like they're probably 100 
100 years old, and they look half the size they should be for being 100 years old, because it's kind of a harsh environment for them to be in, completely unassisted. So what we're doing is we're taking a tree that was able to fight this harsh environment, and we're just slightly improving its environment. And by doing that, we'll increase its mass, we'll increase its production, we'll increase its rate of growth, uh, because it now has additional assets that we've simply provided for them. And in just about any kind of uh, a wild location, if you look around, there'll be forage crops. Anything from acorns to hickories to blackberries to blueberries, cranberries, tea berries, uh, you know, uh, miner's lettuce. There's, there's going to be something there that's a natural forage crop. And what most people do when they see a natural forage crop is they go, well, great, there's a natural forage crop. I don't have to do anything except harvest it. But if you take the step of simply providing a microclimate for it, if it's in a space where it's getting a little bit too much shade, maybe you remove a tree or a bush. If it's not getting enough moisture, maybe you go in there and you uh, you apply mulch just to do some better moisture retention. If you're in a place where it's getting too wet and it's just a little bit too wet for it, it would do better if it was a little bit drier. Maybe you provide a little bit of a drainage capacity. But by simply doing these little adjustments to a wild crop that's already able to sustain itself without help and you give it help, you increase its productivity, its longevity, and its survival rate. And it becomes a better asset for you on your property. If you look at doing things like planting trees, this is another thing that you can really do fairly well remotely. A tree doesn't have to be taken care of every single day to survive well. The problem is when you plant a new young tree, it has a very limited root system. You pulled it out of a burlap bag or a bucket or something like that, and the tree is relatively large compared to its root system, and it needs a good season to start driving those roots deeper and deeper into the soil and establishing itself. So it's very important to mulch around a tree that you plant, stake it so it deals with the wind and things like that. But there's actually some irrigation systems that one of our foreign members, and I can't remember who turned me on to, and I'm going to look at acquiring some of them so I can start planting some remote trees up there. And what it is is a great big water bladder. And you fill it, and you can set them to drain so slowly that they take 30 days to completely drain. A very slow trickle of irrigation. That should get your trees through even six to eight weeks because with that mulch layer, some natural rain and irrigation, and then that full month of very slow trickling irrigation should get those young trees off to a good start. So that opens up the opportunity to start planting trees, planting bushes, planting other permaculture crops and allowing them to begin to establish themselves while you're not there. And if you take kind of that blended approach of establishing permaculture crops, enhancing the existing permaculture crops that are naturally occurring and putting in raised beds, by the time you actually go to this location, assuming you get to do it on a time of your own choosing, a plan, a timeline, you don't have to bug out to it, uh, you should have a, a location that's ready to really begin a high level of production for you uh, before you arrive. When it comes to your structure itself, I would use caution with going overboard with remodeling, upgrades, carpeting, things that make the property look better. Um, you probably want to save that until 
you actually go there, it, 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 again, if you're doing this with a timeline in mind, because the better your property looks, honestly, the bigger a target it becomes. <clears throat> or another way to look at this is we have some pretty old carpet in our place up there. We want to replace it all with wooden floors. Now, if somebody breaks into it and hacks up the carpeting right now, we don't really care. It won't really matter. But if somebody were to break into it and damage the wood floors that we put in, well, now we've actually lost something that we wanted to keep. So we're kind of putting off putting the wood flooring in until we actually go up there. Uh, that's just one example. Now, things like painting, I mean, you might as well go ahead and knock stuff like that out. We're talking about redoing our cabinetry and our, 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 our shelves up there. Those aren't really homesteading things. Those are aesthetic things. So those can wait until we go because they really don't make us more able to provide for ourselves. They just give us a little bit better of a quality and a standard of living. So those type of things you generally want to put off. Uh, Looking at something like ammunition. I definitely think it makes sense to store ammunition, even if you don't store firearms in your remote location. This is something, though, that you have to cache. You have to hide it away. It can't be in a cabinet somewhere where it's easy to find. It is probably one of the biggest things that you'll depend on. It also has an awful lot of weight. Ammunition is heavy. Even stuff like 9mm, if you get 1,000 rounds of 9mm, it's very, very heavy, let alone 1,000 rounds of 308 or 30 6 or 500 rounds of 12-gauge shotgun shells. Things like that are very heavy. So it's a good thing to bring in uh, to a remote location over time to phase it in so you don't have to carry as much. Also, if you end up in a big bug-out scenario where you have to you know, kind of haul ass, if the authorities are out there seizing stuff, it's one thing that won't be seized, and it's part of why you might want to consider caching at least one or two weapons out there. Obviously, it goes without saying, they have to be extremely well hidden. You know, nigh impossible to find without knowing exactly where they are. But it would prevent, in a case where martial law is declared, from you ending up completely unarmed once you're finally to uh, your bug out location. I'm a big believer if you ever end up in a bug out scenario, too, folks. Just a little side advice here. And, you know, the government's actually running checkpoints or anything like that. It doesn't make sense for you to try to force your will with the government when they try to take your guns from you. Because they're going to get them, and the only thing you're going to end up is imprisoned or shot if you try to prevent it. But the smart thing to do would be to store your best weaponry in a very hidden location. If you're asked if you're carrying weapons, you say, yes, you are. You show them your crappy $150 high-point pistol properly stored in a case the way it's supposed to be and some crappy old Mossberg busted-up shotgun and say, we have these for self-defense. There are guns. They're, they're completely legal. And if they say, we're sorry, we have to take them. You give them to them. Because they're probably not going to dig any deeper because you've cooperated. That way you've retained a way to provide defense for yourself. And it makes a hell of a lot more sense to try to have a Mexican standoff that you're going to lose. So that's just another little piece of advice there. But definitely weaponry and ammo is something you want to consider stockpiling. Because when you get there, you may have to defend yourself. And you want to make sure, though, that it's stored in a way that it doesn't end up being used against you. I'll leave it at that. Water is another thing you really need to look at, making that improvement right away. Uh, We have a well. 
but our well runs on electricity. Now, our plan is eventually to either get a solar-powered uh, well pump uh, or at least to get some kind of a manual apparatus pump that we can cap our well with if we're ever without electricity. Because uh, we did end up there one time without electricity. Fortunately, the fact that we catch rainwater and things like that uh, and that there's a natural source of water available less than a mile away from the house uh, made us uh, able to get through a few days of just moderate discomfort with very little discomfort, honestly. Uh, but, so, I mean, if you look at, you know, people look at rain barrels and you look at these two $300 rain barrels uh, online when you add shipping to them, they might even be more than that. And professional rainwater catch systems, and that's great. And if you're going to do it right, you're going to do it long term, it's the way to do it. But if your choice today is, I can't afford that, then you know what you do? You go out and you buy yourself a couple great big uh, very sturdy trash cans for under a hundred bucks. You cut a hole in the top of them and you patch the hole with hardware cloth so that mosquitoes and different things like that can't get into the holes in the lid. And maybe you make a series of holes uh, versus one giant one so that the water you know can can filter in there. Maybe you even change the shape of the lid a little bit. Maybe you cut a hole and it puts them down. Whatever you whatever you need to do to get water to flow into there at a good capacity rate. And you. Even if you don't have uh, downspouts on your roof, you find the places where the uh, eaves come together, and you just stick them there. And there's just some freaking water there for under a hundred bucks, and at least you have some reserve water. Now that water is not potable. You can't just you know throw a canteen into it and start drinking it. But it can be used for irrigation. It can be used for flushing toilets. It can be uh, used for basic you know washing your hands and things like that. And if nothing else, it can be boiled and purified so that you could actually drink it if you had to. And it's easy to end up with, you know, 100 gallons of water very inexpensively just by catching rainwater. Now, some of you folks will write me from Colorado and say that in Colorado they, they fine you if you put out rain barrels. I, I'd figure out a way to hide them. I really would. I'm not going to be without rain barrels, especially in a remote location, uh, because I need a backup source of water. And, and to me, it's my property. It's my water. I know what the government says. I'm still going to collect my water. Ideally, you'd want to put in cisterns and have this water um, underground and hidden from those people that might come to your location uh, while you're not there. And we're going to work on some ways to do that. We have uh, just a couple inches deep. It's solid rock, so we can't quite do that. But there's there's some ideas that we have to be able to store additional water without it being so obvious that's what it is, uh, should anybody get on the location while we're not there to defend it. But it's definitely something you want to do from very low tech uh, to very high end. It's up to you how far, how fast. But I'd say if your decision is between nothing and low tech, go low tech. I mean, you can go buy at Walmart 32-gallon trash can. And yes, if you fill them with water, they have enough structural integrity. They don't fall apart. I know because I have one in my greenhouse I used for a heat sink. You can buy those for about $10, either at Walmart or Target. I'm not sure where I found them for that price. You can go buy five of those for 50 bucks. Call them 15 and say it's five for $75. Five times three is 150 gallons of water, and it's in five 
separate um, containers so it has some redundancy. And you can just set them around the areas of your roof that have the greatest amount of drained water. Again, cutting a hole in the lids, uh, maybe creating some kind of a concave shape to the lids by cutting them and using some screening. Very inexpensive. Anybody can do it, even me. And now you have a reserve supply of water. It's an improvement you really absolutely need to make kind of a first level priority because you do not want to end up at your remote location without water. That said, on top of that, it doesn't take a whole lot of money or brains to go down to Walmart and purchase, you know, 20, 30, 40 gallons of water. There's 69 cents a gallon at Walmart uh, in jugs and you store them in various closets and whatnot in your home. I've heard people worry about the storage of that water, the, 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 the uh, bottle breaking down and what have you. If you store it in the dark, uh, if you gave me a bottle that has had that water and my choice was to, to uh, dehydrate or drink it and it had been there for 15 years, I'd be happy to drink it. If you're that doggone worried about it, once a year, make the investment and pull it out, drink it, rotate it, and start over. Uh, Or, you know, if you want to save bottles from like two liter soda bottles, if you rinse those out well, if you put clean water in them, their storage length of time is actually damn near infinite. Uh, If you have running water at your facility, if you're that worried about it, once every six months that you're up there, dump all the water out, rinse them out, and refill them. Uh, Six months is nothing. The thing about the two liter soda bottle is that that bottle is not going to break down at all with water. It's designed to hold long-term storage in extreme temperatures, soda, which is highly acidic. Now you're taking a non-acidic product like water and putting it in there. It's not going to break down, especially if you keep it in the dark. So two-liter soda bottles, self-filled, another great way to store water. But have both a way to catch rainwater and additional stores of potable, drinkable water that can be used for cooking, etc. And try to provision a way to you know have running water as soon as possible, be it from a well uh, or if you're somewhere where you can get city water hookup, that's okay. I personally prefer a well for something like that. If you have a well and you're worried about low water table times of the year, it's fairly inexpensive to have somebody come out and put in a two, three, or a thousand or larger uh, storage tank where your well fills that storage tank and you actually pump water from the storage tank into the home. And that'll usually get you through the driest parts of the year when the water table is lower. I actually read a story about a guy that got a great deal on a piece of property. It was a vacation property, beautiful little cabin. It was for sale for next to nothing so he knew there was a catch. The owner was honest and said, look, the problem with this property is we never have rain here July, August, September. It gets very, very dry. The water table drops and the well runs dry. And uh, even drilling a deeper well is not really an option. Um, There's a hard rock layer down there after that and and you have to go a lot deeper, and it's a very, very expensive process to put a well in. Uh, so I've decided that I need to mark the property down. Well, the guy being smart phoned up a local well company and said, "Is there a solution to this other than putting a well in?" And they said, "How you know the, the, the area around here is usually pretty good nine months out of the year. You only need to get through three months." He had two twenty-five. Uh, he got a quote to put in two twenty-five hundred gallon storage tanks, and. And uh, it was expensive, but when you added it to the price of the property, it was still a great deal for the property as a whole. So what he did, he got the quote, went to the went to the seller, purchased the property at the asking price, which was a steal, and then had the, the uh, reserve tanks put in. 
5,000 gallons was more than enough uh, for a typical uh, uh, homestead, you know, homestead use for those three months. And he has now a property where he doesn't ever run out of water. He doesn't have problems with the dry well because he thought creatively. So another thing is to always continue to think creatively about problems and to see if you can figure out a solution to somebody else's problem, a lot of times it becomes an opportunity. Either an opportunity for you to help them and maybe earn something by doing it. Uh, that's the spirit of entrepreneurialism or in this case a way to take advantage of what seemed like too good of a deal to be true and know how to solve the problem in advance. Notice I didn't say he just bought it and then figured I'd figure out a way to do it. He figured the solution out before he committed himself to the buy. Uh, so, so try to think creatively as you're planning your remote bug out and if you're looking for one, think creatively that way. I, there might be some properties out there in that very situation today. I think another great improvement you can make remotely is a very uh, basic solar system. Even if all it does is run a few lights for you, uh, things that are already set up to run on 12 volts, uh, you know, a couple inverters so that you can at least run a laptop computer and get your data uh, if you don't have certain things printed out once you're there. Uh, provide yourself a limited bit of entertainment. At least you could have some uh, DVDs and whatnot and watch DVDs on a laptop computer if you don't laptop computer. This does not have to be expensive. I mean, you're talking $150 worth of uh, the little solar panels that people use for like what I was talking about earlier, like for a deer feeder uh, or something like that, and a bank of uh, some 12-volt uh, marine batteries. And if you buy those uh, used, uh, you can usually get them pretty cheap, and they're usually good enough to hold a charge. You can find used ones that are good enough to hold a charge if they're constantly being recharged with something like that. You're probably better off going ahead and buying some good, brand-new deep-cycle batteries for a system like that. But even a setup with three or four batteries uh, can provide you at least lighting during the evenings. And another thing it might provide you with, if you're there during a very hot time of the year, is some form of cooling. Now, you're not going to run an air conditioner, but you could run uh, a 12-volt fan that at least would provide you while you're asleep some ventilation. And that is a big deal if you ended up in a situation where the electrical grid was down. Uh, and if you're in a remote location and you lose power, in addition to, you know, just like this, you know, the, the disaster scenarios we're talking about, let's just say it's a simple regional thing or even a fairly large event like the ice storm that we had this winter and your power's out. Having some level of solar power or wind-generated power like that is a great way to at least have something. Now, during an ice storm, you're more worried about heat. But there's other weather events that can knock down power lines. And what you need to understand is if you are tied to the grid and you're in a remote location and the power is down widespread, let's say it's a major storm with some tornadic activity, you come last when it comes time for the electric company to put the power back up. You're the last person that they take care of. And, uh, you know, that that sucks, but it's reality, and you can't fault the electric company or the, the government for thinking that way. We have 30,000 people without power. If we fix this problem, 18 people get their power back. If we fix this problem, 20,000 people get their power back. That's how you have to prioritize. So being remote, you're going to be last. So having a little bit of some type of a solar system is a good idea anyway, but in this scenario, it's a great idea. On top of that, having a generator 
is a really important thing. Even if it's just a simple low-end generator that's not even something you plug into your main distribution system, one of these little four or $500 generator sets you can get from Home Depot. Uh, that's a great thing to have for your remote location. I really would not keep it at your remote location. Unless you can find some way to so cash or secure it, you can be sure no one is going to find it. I promise you, if some criminal breaks into your remote location while you're not there, and they see that you have a portable, carryable, wheelable generator set that can be thrown in the back of a truck and stolen, it will be one of the things they steal. Because they're probably looking to buy their next crack rock, and all they're going to have to do is roll down to the pawn shop, and they're going to be able to get money for that little setup. So it's really something you, you, you should not keep there, again, unless you can be absolutely sure of your ability to secure it. It's probably something to keep at your main location and have a plan to get into one of your vehicles if you go remote. Uh, if you're living in a remote location, it pretty much goes without saying that you absolutely need to have some sort of a generator set because you could end up going long-term without power. Uh, hopefully one day I'm going to do a generator show uh, with uh, a lot of information on selecting a generator and all. I'll say, if nothing else, though, at least having a small generator set that you can run a few appliances with and some lighting with is a really good idea. Another thing we do pretty much every time we go is we'll uh, look at some of the fallen trees and stuff that are on the property and cut them up and add a little bit of uh, supply of wood to the wood pile. Now, that's something else that somebody might come in and steal. We kind of keep it broken up into multiple areas. We don't have one giant wood pile, so it doesn't stand out. Uh, but our thought is if somebody steals some wood, somebody steals some wood, uh, the chances they won't and the fact that there will be wood there for heating and cooking if everything else fails is uh, is worth the risk. So we always do a little bit of cutting of wood. We kind of have it like we put our wood in this pile, then this pile, then this pile, then this pile. That way there's always some wood that's well-aged and well-dried out at various stages. And hopefully if anybody does steal it, they'll be idiots and steal the greenest wood that we have. On top of that, we keep an awful lot of uh, charcoal bags of charcoal at a remote location and a simple crappy charcoal grill. And the reason we keep a crappy one is, uh, honestly, I don't think anybody would steal it. But it cooks just fine. I think anybody that looked at it would go, I'm not putting that dirty-ass thing in my vehicle, even if they were a criminal. I'm not going to get any money out of it. It's not really worth anything. Um, so it doesn't look glorious. But uh, when we throw some charcoal in it and throw some steaks on it, they come out tasting just fine. Uh, so it's something else you want to consider. We have a much better grill that we would take with us if we were bugging out or moving permanently, but having that crappy little grill there is a good idea. Another thing that I'll point out to you that doesn't really have anything directly to do with the location itself, uh, but could become very, very important. It may be a great idea to find a small local bank, open up, open up a small checking or savings account, and put a little bit of money in there and just leave it there. And I'm talking 500 a 1000 bucks. Uh, it may be even something that you just use as kind of an additional savings vehicle that you throw 15, 20, 25 bucks into. It's a local source of a check. It's a local source of money. If you're there and you see a great deal and you don't have the cash to buy it and you want to make the purchase, a lot of merchants won't take anything but a local check. So you would have a local check with a local address. It'll make your transition there in the future much easier. So it's a really good idea. The additional thing that you may want to consider doing, because people worry, well, what if the banks fail? And that's a risk. Uh, we do have FDIC and all, but if we have a total meltdown, what have you, uh, how safe is a bank? 
bank account. A small bank account is probably safe. So it's that's a good step. But what's one more step you can take? One more step you can take is very it's very inexpensive to rent what's called a safety deposit box, which is you know basically inside the vault of a bank. You're able to store whatever you want there. You're generally able to have complete privacy when you're putting things into or getting it out of your safety deposit box. So you might want to put some gold, some cash, and maybe some other supplies. And I'll leave it at that with other supplies, all right? In a local safety deposit box in a bank. So that even if the bank was shut down from doing check business, they'll probably let you into your safety deposit box. And unless we're in the end of the world scenario, that'll be there. So you could be in a situation where you've lost everything, but at least something safe in your remote location. And if you take that two-pronged approach of having a safety deposit box and a checking account at a local bank, should you ever have to go there quickly, a lot of the pain-in-the-ass things are taken away from you, and you don't have to worry about them. I know that may not sound as exciting as uh, putting a, a well in or a solar system in or you know, doing a, you know, getting a completely energy-independent system of the grid or sinking a well or permaculture crops for feeding wildlife. But it's a great step in the right direction, and it doesn't take that much work to get it done. All right, and you shouldn't have any trouble opening a bank account. You explain that you have a place of residence. You take something that proves your address, that you live there remotely, and you'd like to have an account with a local bank. You're not going to have any trouble. Now, your your address is probably going to end up having to be whatever's on your ID, uh, but you'll probably be able to get checks printed with your local address. And that, like I said, if you have to deal with local merchants, sometimes they won't take a check from an out-of-state person. In a time of crisis, they're going to be less likely to take that check, and it will allow you to move into the local community much quicker should you ever have the need and or desire to do so. So these are just some various things to think about if you're planning on doing the remote property thing. They're all things that we have in one level or layer going on for ourselves, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to show you some of them uh, with some video in the Members Support Brigade area when we open that program back up, and uh, we get that video in there. Again, folks, uh, you know, while you're listening to this, know that I am in my remote location. Uh, this show is not all theory. It's an awful lot of practice on top of theory. These are things that we really do. And uh, part of our plan to live a better life, no matter what happens, good times or bad. And hopefully it's helping you to adjust your life and think differently. Even if you're never going to have a remote location, hopefully the things that I've talked to you about today help you simply to think more, to plan more. Because as I always say, it's your biggest asset, folks. You can know how to start a fire and survive in the middle of the jungle with nothing but a knife. But urban survival or suburban survival or even remote bug out location survival is a completely different scenario and the guy that can take that bowie knife and head out in the middle of the jungle and survive you know he might be fine on his own but can you take care of your wife your son your daughter your brother your sister your uncle your cousin the people you care about 
how long can they survive in that type of an environment? And most of us, you know, the choice comes down to between our survival and taking care of our loved ones. We're going to take care of our loved ones. And that usually involves being able to think and to plan and to have a course of action to follow when things go wrong. To know who does what, where you're going, how you're going to get there, and what you do if that plan fails. If you keep that philosophy running, you'll be able to take care of yourself. You'll be able to take care of those you love no matter what comes your way. And always fall back to your biggest asset, your mind, your ability to think, and your knowledge that what you do does matter and you have the greatest influence over your life of any person on the planet. This is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Spend